Hi, this is Brent Weeks, author of the Lightbringer series. Welcome to the Legendarium. This is one of those lessons that people probably roll their eyes. Some people will roll their eyes at and be like, uh. <laughs> With God, all things are possible. I get it. Stuff. Like, <laughs> that, was, that was an excellent impression of all of our listeners, by the way. You're welcome. I, I'm sure they appreciate that. <laughs> welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast. Today, we are discussing... The Burning White by Brent Weeks. So buckle the f*** up. As Ryan and I (laughs) predicted, this has been a divisive book. So I'm excited to dive in. But before we do, I'd like to remind you that The Legendarium is available on your favorite podcast player. So please subscribe. But if you're looking for older episodes that are outside that feed, you can find them grouped by subject at thelegendariumpodcast.com. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting us on Patreon and, of course, tell your friends and leave a review and stick around to the end of this episode and I will announce a giveaway that we're doing for a signed hardcover of The Burning White. That'll come up toward the end of the episode. So, I am your host, Craig Hanks, and with me today, well, he's so smoldering he's going to light up all the subreds out there. It's Ryan Bruckman. I'm not really sure if that's an insult or not. Well... (laughs) Trying to figure out what you're going We're, for I'm, there. I'm going, I'm going uh, weirdly charitable today. Oh. Because she, she's more helpful than coffee at an execution. It's Melanie Bond. Hi. Hey. <laughs> so, Melanie, introduce yourself. Um, my name's Melanie. I am also known as the Dread Pirate Caps Lock because I am uh, Caps Lock 2.0, which is the editorial and administrative assistant to brent weeks very nice um so yeah melanie have she and i have been email friends for a few months now but i'm excited that we finally get a chance to meet face to skype yeah yeah it's great so (laughs) so glad to have you here and uh she she's going to be our expert walking us through the burning white today ryan do you remember (laughs) it was a, a few episodes ago i can't remember what we were talking about but i mentioned our burning white episode the uh, spoiler-free yes. review as one that I would love to get a mulligan on because mm-hmm. I felt like it's impossible to talk about this book without talking about spoilers, and we just kind of fumbled for forty minutes and didn't really say much of anything. Because what can you say? Like there is very little thing you can do without revealing some major plot point. Right. Well, here we are. Time to spoil it. <laughs> it's we're yeah we're gonna spoil the crap out of the book right away. So it just. Blanket, blanket spoiler alert. We're not doing half the book now and half later. We're talking about the entire book. We're going to be skipping around, talking about different plot points. Um, and uh, I think that'll just allow us to have a, a, a much freer conversation about the book. This is our mulligan. Here we go. Let's let's take another crack at it. So, All right. um, do we want to do a little recap? What happens in this book? Okay, Gavin meets God, and together they save the day. Uh, Kip, Kip well, kind of, kind of. Kip and Kip brings the mighty back to the Cromeria and together they save the day. Uh, Right, with an army. Uh, Tia has successfully infiltrated the Order of the Broken Eye and does all sorts of crazy stuff. And she saves everybody's day all by herself. Yeah, this this series is really about Tia and her fight against the gods. Little little did we know that (laughs) Tia was the hero all along, right? Right. Uh, And then Karis, does Karis, uh, she's in this book, right? Yes, yeah. just just a little bit. Yeah. Just 
a little. Yeah. Okay. What does Karis do? She's in charge of the Chromaria's defense. Well, sure. And I mean, getting uh, dealing with the giant army of whites and yep. banes that are coming in. Uh, on top of missing her husband, who she knows is alive, but is no idea what happened to him again. So this book, um, if we were to sum it up in an, a word, this book was nuts. It was nuts, right? <laughs> that fits. That fits. I, I mean, I don't know that I, I can't remember the last time I've seen a book with so much plot packed in. And even with that being the case, I remember for the first third or so being like, oh, this is kind of starting slow. When are we going to you know, get to? And then when the avalanche starts, it starts early and it never stops. This is true. true. Right. It's like maybe after the first third or the first half of the book, when we talk about the, the Sanderson avalanche, right? And how, you know, that kind of happens in the last 10 pages of all of his books. This was an avalanche that lasted, uh, what, 150, 200,000 words at least. I compare this. At least. I, I would compare this a lot to, um, not necessarily in any other way other than just how much there is in there, but the final parts of the Wheel of Time, where that last book is just the last battle. Right. Like this book is the same thing for this series. It's basically just the culmination of all that has been built up before. Right. For the entire book, there's not really much more setup going on, other than a few points. Uh, we did miss it. Karis like has to deal with the uh, Iron Fist coming back right. as the king, like things like that. That's kind and of a new moment. Zyman. Zyman. Yes. yes. So, and, and that kind of underscores what I'm talking about here. I did not write, uh, you know, a Ken-style recap of what happens in the book because I would still be talking. It'd be eight minutes long. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even, and then people would be like, well, you missed that, you missed that, because there's so much that happens. And so, I'm going to, we're going to be counting on the listeners to just have read the book, right? Yes. And uh, hopefully know what we're talking about at any given moment. So, <laughs> Melanie, you have been working with Brent for a little while, and so you got to see, you know, the, the process of this book being created and, and whatnot. Were you, is it fair for me to ask you, were you satisfied by the end of this one? Were, did you, did you really enjoy it? Tell me, tell me how much you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, yeah overall <laughs> <laughs> i'm leaving oh. i'm leaving that entire hesitation all in there that's 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 in stone i i mean i love i love i have such a personal connection to this book because i was it was a deep dive for so many months for me um so and a lot of it i mean for me it starts like the avalanche starts in the those early chapters i think it's chapter 21 is the one where um gil grayling is mourning his the loss of his brother and tia is in the room and she's wearing her shimmer cloak and he's he hears the floor creak under tia's feet and he's like ah he thinks it's his brother and it's uh -huh. actually tia and it was gut-wrenching to me yeah that was rough and, and so it was all kind of like it, the the gut-wrenching just kind of twisted a little harder like all through from then on and um the i mean there were there were some small things that i would have changed about the ending i mean i i thought that the i thought that there were a few chapters at the very end that um didn't really reveal a lot of new information for me in terms of like 
plot and character development. It was all stuff I was reading it. And I was like, yeah, I, 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 this is what I expected. Um, and you know, Brent is the Lightbringer series is kind of known for its, you know, for being unexpected for its twists and turns. I mean, like the end of broken eye, I, when I got to the part where, you know, iron fist is like, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the order and, uh, talking to Grinwoody, I was like, I, I think when I first read that, I put the book down and I just shouted. I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so I think we talked about this with Blood Mirror. Like, how many rugs does this man have to pull? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Burning White is, it's all about taking little moments from all four of the other books and tying them into this and making it one complete story. So in that way, it was it, I, like, it was incredibly satisfying to me. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, you know, the character development is, I, I won't say unparalleled, but I, like, I, you know, I, I kind of feel like that's a good place to dive into talking about some of our characters here um, as we get away from general feelings about the book. And I'm sure we'll get back to that in, in a bit. But I don't know that I have ever read a single character whose arc I enjoyed more than Kip's. Mm. I found his arc specifically so satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever else can be said positively or negatively about all these books. I found Kip's growth as a person so satisfying to watch that um, that it could cover a multitude of sins by itself. And, you know, we have all this art up on the walls here, you know, a lot of Sanderson, a lot of Tolkien, a lot of other stuff. I want a really nice portrait of Kip uh, for my wall here in the studio. I, I think he, we, I know that they were, he was doing a uh, Nine Kings card uh challenge for oh, a while that's right. i started working yeah, on yeah. one but never finished it enough to submit it but uh i like the idea of having like a nine kings poster oh, like yeah. a card of kip or any of these characters done that way in a large print would be fantastic yep so I'd if you've that. done one or if you know of one hit us up yeah uh-huh. yeah there's one of the one of the winners of the the contest actually um he alex Antoria, i think is the guy's name um he did the Lightbringer card, and it has Andros at the top, and then um, I think Gavin, Days and Gavin is in the middle, and then Kip riding the turtle bear is at the bottom, <laughs> nice. and it and it's it, because it's like it's a trinity, like the whole the, it all comes down to you know people. I've seen on uh, different forums people asking, well, who was actually the Lightbringer, and I'm like, it's all three of them. If this is a very like, I don't I don't think Brent was trying to obfuscate the fact that this this is a Trinity metaphor that we're going for here, and it took all three of them doing exactly what they did best to to make everything come together. So, well, let's talk about the three of them then. What do they do best? We have talked a lot, uh, almost ad nauseum. We've talked about Andros and his uh, incredible ability to. Uh, well, his, his incredible political machinations, right? Yeah. Sing it. Eh, machinations. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so we've got that one. We've talked about Kip and his growth uh, as, a, as a character from, you know, he does the he does the growth story, right? From, mm-hmm. uh, from nothing to everything. And then Gavin is kind of the opposite um, mm-hmm. from, from everything to nothing. 
Uh, and so, but yeah. what, but what do they? What are their the two of them? What is it that they bring to the table that Andros doesn't? Uh, Kip has his uh, his leadership abilities that he has cultivated over the course of uh, the previous four books. What does Gavin bring that he that neither of the other two could? Literally, uh, God. Well, there is that. Um, yeah, and and the the, the Black Luxon wave. It was all Dazen. And, uh, you know, it's, and I think going along with the motif of their storylines, kind of like Kip is on the rise and Dazen is on a slow descent through the series. Um, I, I, in my mind, Dazen is the one who brings black and Kip is the one who brings white. Although, which literally, I guess you could say, yeah true. which is literally yeah. yeah exactly literally true but then how does how does andros fit in because that's a very nice neat duality there but we're talking mm-hmm. about a trinity and i yeah i don't know mm-hmm. what he brings although ooh, okay oh now we're getting into something here i don't know that i brought this up on the broken or sorry the blood mirror episode uh, i don't think i did but i wish i had the conversation about, or the, is it a, a mental image that Gavin has of black and white and how he looks inside himself and sees that, um, you know, the world isn't, the world isn't shades of gray. It actually is black and white, but the thing about it is that the shards of himself or the threads of his life are black and white in such fine detail that it effectively becomes shades of gray. Mm-hmm. But that I thought it was a really neat way to say that there is such a thing as ultimate truth. There is such a thing as good and evil. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the world works neatly. Um, it just means that, you know, you could break down each individual characteristic or action or whatever of a, a person or an event and say whether it was good or evil. But it, does that make sense? Like they're so finely interwoven yeah. that it effectively becomes gray. And I wonder if that's something like what we get from Andros, that he he cuts things so finely that it's impossible to say, oh, he's an evil person or he's a good person. It's that his shards of black and white are so fine that he's effectively gray. I could see that. Um, I, I have a hard time, too, also, when we put it so clearly with Gavin and, and Kip identifying Andros. But if I change it just a little bit to... Uh, where their arc is taking them um for kip from the beginning to end it, it it's he, he works from non-belief in himself nothing there into actual uh understanding of his own role growing into as a person uh finding the confidence and the ability to be a leader to do these things and to uh, eventually make the sacrifice that has to be made in order to save do his portion of the saving Whereas Gavin, on the other hand, is the descent into realizing you can't do this alone. You cannot do this alone. Well, Andros, on the on that side of that, is someone who has planned and worked so much to make things happen the way he has. His plan is so clear to drive him to be the light bringer that at the end of the series, he's the only one who doesn't get what he wants, sort of. <laughs> sort of. Like, he he gets the title, but he even openly admits, like, I don't know if this is actually me. And so he learns to deal with it. He has to learn to deal with the disappointment of everything I planned didn't come, didn't go out the way that I wanted to when he's the one character who that has always been the the case for. Interesting. There's a, one of the, what I thought one of the finest moments in this book 
is when um, Andros climbs down off of the the prisms array. Um, it's this, this great machine on top of the prisms tower, right? Where right. that all the other prisms needed to use for 400 years, but Dazen never needed, which is another, that's a tangent. But um, he finishes his work and he steps down. And I think we see it from Oliviana's point of view, but he, uh, and he, you know, raises his fists and he's cursing at the sky and he's like, you took it from me. You took, this is, I've been working my whole life. And he just, in my mind, like I'm reading it and he's just this sad, pathetic, lonely old man who got everything he wanted and nothing that he needed because he's like in the service of, of his goal of being the light bringer, he has abandoned everything that really matters in his life. And so, and, but he gets to be the, the one who actually points the mirrors and brings light, which is something I think that's touched on in uh, some, there's a conversation with the mighty earlier in the book where they're, they're talking about what if, you know, I think Ben Haydad says, what if we put all the religious mumbo jumbo aside and say, what if the light bringer is just someone who literally brings light and uh, that's kind of a nod to what ends up happening at the, and I think it's a bit of foreshadowing. So, but anyway, or for, um, or for lighting. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I, I hate both of you so much right now. Come on, that was good. This is gold, radio gold, people. Uh, all right, let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about our other characters. And by the way, for all of you from Discord who submitted your questions, don't worry. We're getting there. Um, but let's talk about some other characters. Let's talk about Tia for a minute. We kind of joked about Tia as the true hero of the story. She's the Samwise Gamgee. You know, you know, nobody expects the Spanish, in- Spanish Inquisition, right? <laughs> nobody saw Tia coming. Um, but Tia, I, 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 you mentioned this, uh, Melanie, before we turned on the mics, that Tia murders everybody who gets murdered in this book just about i mean with some exceptions she is uh, an unstoppable righteous killing machine right well righteous can be questioned exactly yes (laughs) so let's talk about tia's story and whether we found it uh interesting satisfying uh because a lot of we we all went into this book i think expecting unbelievable amounts of death and destruction a lot of people were probably pretty disappointed on that front, but what we did get came from her, right? So, Ryan, what did you think of Tia's journey in this book? Uh, I, I think there, yes, there was a lot of death and destruction. It just wasn't our good guys well, who, that, yeah, who ended that. up getting hit by that. I We talked a lot about, um, I think it was in Blood Mirror, uh, that we said this is really the launching point for Tia's uh, new morality to, to take a hold. Um, and kind of she's just doing this because she feels that it's right uh, versus other things. And this is our chance to see her in the, that position and actually execute on getting rid of the order, um, which she could have theoretically joined as well. I, I, I was very appreciative of uh, Tia, specifically in the moments towards the end, once she had already made the sacrifice. Um, she's drunk the poison, like, I've, I've finished my mission here. And she's decided, like, okay... I only have this much longer. I'm going to get closure on the things I need closure for. Um, because she hasn't been given that moment before. When the Mighty took off uh, in the third book, at the end of the third, you know, she and Kip are just kind of like, oh, yeah, we 
we were kind of a thing, but bye. I'm going to stay here and do my job. Oh, you're okay. You're going to get married before we leave. All right. Okay. That's fine. I'm going to go kill people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all have our callings, right? Yeah. That's my, that's mine actually. Um, for me, I was, like I said, I was very appreciative of her taking that end portion of what she believed to be the end of her life to come back to humanity a little bit rather than just dying the lone murderess out somewhere to come back and say, Hey, Kip, I really like, like you mean a lot to me. The mighty, you guys, I miss being your, I miss my brothers. I mean, it was a piece that I needed from Tia to make sure that she didn't go way off on the dark. Right. And I really appreciated that that was there. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Melanie? Thoughts on Tia? I bet, I bet you have a couple. I, I mean, I love Tia so much. <laughs> I mean, I think Ryan like summed up most of my thoughts. Really, it's um, yeah. He tends to do that. He's really annoying that way. <laughs> <laughs> I should never kick I, it to him first. Brent worked really hard on her character progression in this book, and uh, like we spent a lot of time talking about it, and you know. Um, looking at, you know, she's a teenager. She's like, her emotions are just kind of boiling out of her and then hormones are going crazy. And, and at the same time, she's been given this enormous responsibility that like no one, most adults can't handle. And suddenly she's expected to root out the order of, you know, this 400 people who she doesn't even know who they are. And, and, you know, and, uh, she had, she comes into this book with a lot of conflicting loyalties and a lot of conflicting emotions. And I, I thought ultimately like it was, I enjoyed watching her feel conflicted and, and be scared and like have run the gamut of emotions ultimately. And, uh, so I, I found her story arc very satisfying. Yeah, I agree. And, and I kind of differ from what I know a lot of the complaints are. In fact, I, I think there was one that a, a discord listener submitted and I can't find it right away because there were so many, but, um, <laughs> the people have talked about, Oh, well, it's awfully convenient that she, you know, was able to poison everybody at the same time with this thing that was introduced. And I'm like, well, yeah, and I really enjoyed that part. It, it one of the things I liked about that was uh, Tia has always been very smart and sneaky and all the things that she needs to be to be a spy. And so there's this uh, this thing that someone does to try to take her off the board, and she flips it and uses it against the order. I don't. I I thought it was really quite satisfying yeah and i anyone who's a trained assassin who is does a good job there is going to grab an opportunity like that so whether you're like frustrated that it's uh it's too easy like no if if something like that came along i guarantee you they would grab a hold of that um like that's just the way right those things work yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um okay so let's go to karis then and talk about our other um major female character in this book karis uh so she is uh, organizing the defense of the Jaspers, and she is dealing with um, what the King King uh, Iron Fist and all that sort of stuff. What what else is she up to that we need to talk about? She's trying to manage Andros and and Zyman. Trying, 
and Zyman. And, you know, she's kind of, she's kind of the glue that's holding the chromaria together. Well, you know, I mean, that's how I see her. Yeah. I, I don't, I did not leave this book with a strong impression of how I felt about Karis the way that I feel like I did in previous books. Like mm-hmm. maybe she took something of a back seat, but maybe I just um, am not recalling well enough. Um, did, did she, Ryan, for you, did she have as, as satisfying or as interesting an arc as she had in previous books? Uh, not really so much a, a, an arc there because I think she got to where she needed to be to, uh, for the last battle earlier. Yeah. To become the Iron White. That is what she is. What, and that's what she spends book four doing, right? And we see her kind of flail around with Zyman especially. And it's by the end of book four that she realizes after, is it uh, Gavin Grayling who she has yeah, to kill? Up. And there's that that whole scene. Oh my gosh, was that, was that devastating? Where that is her, uh, her, you know, come to Jesus moment. And now she is who she needs to be. And so she kind of is that through book five, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so she, there's not a lot in this book trying to take her anywhere else um, in terms of changing who she is. She still has things she has to deal with. So there's still a, a, something interesting to follow with uh, in this, in the sense of trying to, uh, you know, take care of the Jaspers. She has her, she's still dealing with her crisis of faith that she, uh, at the beginning when Tia comes to tell her about Gavin and says, um, she's like, if Tia gets all pissed because she's like, she gets to come be, uh, you know, frustrated about these things. And I've just gone and done like, no. Oh, that's right. Okay. I did. I did like that scene. So mm-hmm. she's still dealing with her crisis of faith, which is a, an interesting piece to go through. Uh, but she kind of just resolves by dealing with everything else that's coming um, and having to deal with the, implications of what she's gonna have to do when uh, iron fist arrives it starts out with are you ready to marry this man because your husband is still out there and you believe your husband is still out there mm-hmm. are you ready to marry this are you ready to marry iron fist who also is a brother to you type thing right um and then when he gets there oh no are you willing to die for this and become the sacrifice because he, uh, iron fist demands the blood of um right uh, of a guile um and andros is like it's not me <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That that would have been that would have been the most unbelievable thing if Andros was like like laid it down his life for anything. I'll take one for the team. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> no, so, so yeah, Kar- no, that's never gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, Karis's arc, uh, story in this is more the inner emo- emotional turmoil of having to make those choices based on what we've developed all through the beginning. Yeah, there. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's why I think that's why she might seem like it's more of a backseat because it's sure. not plot point moving. So much as it is internal conflict. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw her storyline as it's all personal development. And uh, I thought when I, I feel like her crisis of faith in the beginning when she's laying there and she's like killing Gav wasn't, it wasn't hard. It's just wrong. And, you know, when I read it, I was like, finally, finally, somebody in this series is talking about how, like, I mean, there's, there's a criticism to be made, I think, about, like, no religion would be in the business of murdering its followers. Which, I, that's a, but we're talking about fantasy. I don't, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I might, I might be able to throw I, a few examples out there. It's just okay, bad for enough. it's bad for recruiting if you know that that's the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, in today's enough. yes, in, in modern societies, it would be more difficult. Um, true. So, all right. So, fair enough. When you have right. an endless supply of serfs, yeah, we'll, we'll just chop some yeah, heads off. That's fine. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But at any rate, um, I was really glad to see her kind of tackle the moral implications of the freeing and, you know, her see her confront that. And I, I also, one of my favorite scenes from her later in the book is um, when Samite, I, I always look at the word and say Samite or but her best friend with yeah. the, like the hand that's missing. She's like, you need to remember who you are. That was a very powerful mm-hmm. scene to me where, you know, she said she's and she explains that while they were blackguard scrubs um, and they were in the training and there was Aguilas, the the guy who everybody thought was going to be like the superstar in the blackguard. And um, and meanwhile, Karis is like pissing blood down her leg because, mm-hmm. you know, her muscles are eating themselves because she's running herself to death. And, uh, you know, and Samite says that's that's who you are that is your you know she's tenacious she's unstoppable she's you know and and intelligent and determined and she was like you need to remember this and uh and that's kind of a turning point for Karis and so I thought I thought that was a really beautiful scene before we move on from Karis, can I can you guys remind me? Was it in the Burning White that she opened the uh, the letter or the the package that she was supposed to get from Aurea Pular? Uh, yes. Because and let's that was just a devastating moment for me. I really enjoyed it quite a lot. Uh, remind me what was in the letter. Let's talk about that. It was kind of the the history of the Chromaria, right, and uh, the making of a prism and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, it's it's um it's a folio, you know, so it's a bunch of papers and letters written by all of the previous whites and uh and what we learned by the end of the book, we learned that she discovers how prisms are made, which means she learns that the Chromaria has been murdering children uh in order to install, you know, the pr- the prism that politically makes the most sense, you know, um, and, and she learns that, you know, Aurea Pilar has been complicit in this during her, or was complicit in it during her tenure as the white. And, uh, among other things, you know, the truth about black Luxon and how the previous whites had worked to obliterate all the knowledge huh, appropriately enough. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, know, I like to laugh at my own jokes somebody <laughs> somebody has to right yeah. but <laughs> um and so yeah it's it's i kind of so i guess i i wanted to just mention it even if we don't talk about it for a long time just because it was something that i was so anticipating through book four right where she learns about the existence of this folio but doesn't can't get her hands on it and then she finally does and i'm sitting there going what's in it what's in it i want to know well you get the the earliest uh portion of it when orea paloa says to her basically i hope one day you can forgive me for the, like you're right. going to this that's the like the first thing like okay so why is it just because she's manipulated her into this position and everything maybe one day you'll forgive me for manipulating you or is there more to this here and then we learn oh yeah there's a lot more to this than just i'm sorry i put you in a position of leadership and that you were perfectly qualified for doing this <laughs> right like, <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I I just adore moments like that where, in this case, it wasn't so much Brent pulling a rug out from under our feet as it was building up, building building something up, and then giving it a very satisfying uh, moment that of release where what's in the folio, what has the chromaria done, and you're we're building this dread as readers throughout these books trying to figure out how a prism is made, et cetera. And we kind of have these inklings and what's going on with the freeing and all this stuff. And then finally we get all the answers and it just, it's just a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not different than what you thought. It's just way worse yeah. than anything <laughs> yeah. you ever imagined. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I uh, love that moment. So now I think it's appropriate now that we've talked about uh, the, essentially the, the church of Orholm at the Chromaria. Now we should probably talk about our home a little bit. Mm-hmm. Cause called it book three, by the way. Did you on the podcast? I don't know if I did it on the pod. I don't think I did it on the podcast oh, because I didn't count. want to, but yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. Nice. I, as I, when I'm reading <laughs> or Hollum chained to the oars, I'm like, that's actually God sitting right there. Nice. Like, I called it. I'm like, that is actually God. Wow. Okay. Uh, I did not, I did not call that. Um, but it, it was getting clear as we were making our way up the tower. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I I didn't read it. I read it as God taking in the in book five. I read it as God taking the form of of the, the rower of the rower because yeah because there's a there's a moment where Dazen looks down off the side of the tower and sees Orholm the the slave rower mm-hmm. standing there and he and he see you know and and the old man looks up and he's like, Hey, what, what are you doing? You know? Okay. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, what happened? Are you okay? And, and the Dazen looks at Orholm standing beside him and he realizes who he is. And then he drops to his knees. Right. So, okay. All right, fine. That makes more sense. <laughs> Either way. Yeah. Uh, but I, <laughs> well, I guess that's not the most important thing. We're we're getting stuck. I don't want to get stuck on uh, anything that, uh, that isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is that he gets to talk to God, and I think <laughs> this was the moment when. Uh, okay, so Gavin's making his way up the tower, and, uh, and by the way, can I just point out that the illustration of that tower on the cover of the Burning White? I, I pointed this out maybe at the very beginning of our podcast series on it, but that cover is literally what made me say, Ryan, we got to do this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a good cover. Like when it was announced, I hadn't read any of the books or anything, but I'm like, we're, we're doing this for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so he's climbing up the tower. He gets to the top of it. He has a wrestling match with Shadow Link. Um, <laughs> sort of. I mean, that's okay, fine. I, I'm a nerd. What do you want from me? Um, no, he, he has his biblical wrestling with an angel uh, up on the top of the tower. And then he actually talks to god and that moment when when orholm finally reveals himself and sits down and just is chatting with gavin i'm sorry i'm just gonna call him gavin no it's fine deal with it i suppose uh (laughs) but (laughs) it was at that moment when i finally realized this book will be among the most divisive we've ever talked about because i enjoy moments like that uh, but I know a lot of people hate that stuff. And so I was, I, so when I read that, I was blown away by the nerve, the nerve of this man. 
put it, putting a literal conversation with God in his book. Um, mm-hmm. I'm into it. So there's, all right. <laughs> like I said, a lot of people did not like this moment and I was correct. You know, a lot of people complained about that uh, for a lot of reasons probably. But one of the things that I really love about it is I compare it to other books like um, when we read Starship Troopers. Or a couple Halloweens ago, we did Frankenstein. Let's take Frankenstein for a moment where you you have a story. They're moving through a plot and there's the the Dr. Frankenstein and the monster. But then there are dozens of pages where they're just, they just sit down and chat with each other about the meaning of life, what it means to be a human being. And it's just, it's just a uh, philosophy chat dressed up in a plot. And I actually really like that. But I imagine mm-hmm. it's not everybody's cup of tea. And they just want, you know, kind of pure plot. Um, but I, I loved the conversation and some of the things that they had to say to each other. Um, Ryan, what did you think of it? I, I fall in that same camp where I, I enjoyed it because for me, I'm watching this uh, from Gavin's perspective here. And everything, like I talked about earlier, his his descent to becoming, to getting to a place where he could be changed enough or realize that he has changed enough. It's not so much, I think some people might complain and be frustrated with the idea of, Oh, God showed up and things changed. Right. That's not really how that conversation goes, though. That conversation is, or Hall, I'm sitting there saying, why do you keep fighting what you are? It's not you need to be something different. It's why do you keep fighting what you are? You're a protector. You do these things. This is who you are. Stop fighting. You feel like you're fighting against me. You're fighting against yourself. He says, you guiles are all eagles who go and dive in the, uh, viewing a lake shore, and you all dive in the lake and flap your wings and complain about how you can't fly enough, but you're you keep fighting the fact that you are an eagle. Yeah. I, and I, what, to, what do you take that to mean exactly? Like, how do you interpret that for Gavin? What's he been doing to fight against his nature? Um, part of it is uh, the discussion of his, his own um, agnosticism, atheism, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. The fact that he does not really want to acknowledge, he wants to feel like I've done these things. I built, I built these things. I've done all these things. Uh, building up his own sense of worth there yeah. versus saying, I did these things with help. There are things that have built up there and it's him coming to realize that uh, that he's able to do that, which is why in the end of that conversation, when he goes and draws all that black lux and he takes Orhalem's hand and Orhalem uh, burns the dross out of the black oh, so that yeah. he can throw it out there. Like it's, I can't, if he had just thrown it out there himself, he probably would have killed everybody and himself. But with the help of Orhalem in this, and that's this is one of those purifying lessons. the black luxon. This is one of those lessons that people probably roll their eyes. Some people will roll their eyes at and be like, "Uh, <laughs> with God, all things are possible." I get it. Stuff. Like, <laughs> that was that was an excellent impression of all of our listeners. By the way, you're right. I'm sure they appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that uh, for Gavin's story, like just telling it in the sense of Gavin's uh, moment here, being willing to accept the help and that connection there is, is, is the growth moment that I wanted out of that. And so I enjoy that conversation because if you want to take it personally and take a moment and say, okay, what do I mentally, what do I do that I refuse help with? Or what do I do that fights against my own nature? I believe myself to be this. Am I fighting against, what am I doing? that's not in alignment with this. Yeah. Yeah. So Brent is uh, an outspoken Christian man. Right, goes mm-hmm. goes to church a lot, and I feel like that is kind of uh, he wears that on his sleeve in writing these books, right? Especially here, 
and what you're talking about with, you know, people kind of rolling their eyes at that and, oh, with God, all things are possible. Oh, sure. Okay, great. A Sunday school lesson in the middle of my fantasy book. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that no matter what uh, my personal views are on it. But I want to kick a question to you, Melanie, and, and ask, do you think that there is a divide in people who enjoy and people who don't enjoy this book along the lines of uh, people who are believing uh, Christians? Is the Christianity in this book so strong that those who don't like it won't like this book? What do no. you, what do you thought? What do you no. think about that? Um, I, I, I think it's, um, for some, it depends on the reader, really. It's yeah. very, it's a, it's a really individual experience. And I, I know I've like, I've, um, I mean, I mentioned earlier reading some of the, like the Lightbringer subreddit. Um, and I've read a couple of conversations where people have said, I'm an atheist and I hated the, the proselytizing that yeah. happened in this book. And I've read, and, and there were comments from people who said, I'm very religious and I did not enjoy the way this was like the way this was dealt with. And then I've seen the, the opposite on both ends. I'm an atheist and I thought it was fine. I didn't feel I didn't feel like it was preachy. I didn't feel like it would, you know, yeah. and, and then there were some people who, um, who were Christian and, you know, followed the, what you would typically expect, which is, you know, I'm a Christian and I identify as a Christian and, and this really spoke to me. So the, the reactions that I've seen have run the gamut. Um, and it's, it, it really, it's really personal. Yeah. Like, and I, there was somebody, a, a fan wrote in a couple of months ago and said that, um, you know, talking about the ending and like why Brent would write something so divisive. And, and my response was, well, it, you can't be milk toast if you're going to change the world. I mean, it, you know, and it's, Are it's you not. Are you referring to like this book changing our world or are you talking about in the world of the story? Yeah, a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah, you know, okay. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying that Brent is like setting out to change the world. You know, it's that's it's my take on it. You know, it's if if you set out to write something great, you can't you can't be middling. Right. You can't you can't do can't it. Pull halfway. your punches. Yeah. And you have to write something, you you know, you have to dig deep and get really personal and write something that is good. If it wasn't divisive, it would just be kind of like, eh, oh yeah, it was fine. Yeah. You know, the, no book that has ever like made a huge impact on the world has ever had an ending that was like, meh. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. No, I think I that makes that. a lot of sense. I've <laughs> I've talked in the past uh, in different contexts about, um, you know, people ask, uh, okay, so it's no secret that I do not appreciate the first book in the Farseer trilogy mm -hmm. the way that a lot of people do. Um, and yet, as much as I really did not enjoy reading the book, I'm really glad that I did because it told me something about myself as a reader. It gave me exposure to something else. Um, and I, 
and same thing with movies. You know, people say, what would you like to unsee? I'm like, well, no, I don't want to unsee anything because it's all a part of you know, who I am now. Uh, and just like you're saying, okay, cards on the table. I liked this book and I liked the ending. I, we are going to get to, you know, some complaints and nitpicks and all that probably in the second episode that we do on this. I liked this book. However, I absolutely see all the complaints that people have. Uh, the complaints that people are making, I, I have a hard time being like, no, 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 you're wrong. I mean, sometimes if they actually get something yeah, factually wrong. You don't have a problem saying that, but... <laughs> yeah, I, if they get something factually wrong, that's one thing. But it's like, if you know, if you felt a certain way about it, that that makes sense to me because I can see how divisive I, I could see while I was reading it how divisive it was going to be, and, and yet for those people I would just say, value that, treasure it, analyze it. Why did you dislike it? Uh, get beyond, I didn't like it. I just want to read something else that I like. Figure out why you didn't like it. What value does something that you didn't enjoy, like this conversation with Orhalem? What value does it still bring to you? Mm -hmm. anyway sorry rant over maybe we can actually get back to gavin and orhalem now but uh well i, I mean i think it's, it's all relevant though it's yeah it's worth you know talking about it's sorry go on Ryan. well unless anyone get the idea that this is the only interpretation of the orhalem conversation is that it's a proselyting christianity moment that is simply right. not the case i don't think that's the case that is an interpretation of it that is fairly easy to find there, but that is not the only thing in there. If that's the only thing you took in there, maybe if you're willing, go back, go through it again and just shift your mindset a little bit to say, okay, let's, instead of this being a religious thing about a conversation with God, like what is it about uh, being a person and, and change? Things like that. Because that is something that is not necessarily a tied to a specific religion or concept, but let's just talk about change and changing yourself. Because that's part of the process. And his whole going up the tower and everything, uh, or Hollem has this discussion about <clears throat> um, people go on pilgrimages to shortcut repentance, which is very, again, very Christian thought, but the sure. idea of how often do we try and change ourselves and shortcut the that process. There's plenty there that you can go to without it being a religious discussion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just happens Absolutely. to work in religion. All right. Absolutely. Well, oh, my goodness. Okay, so... Uh, do we want to get back into the plot here? <laughs> I'm like, I, I feel a little bit nervous, like where there's this, this conversation about talking with God and changing yourself and all this stuff. And now I'm like, and what about that airplane? Let's talk about that. You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know quite how to transition back to all that stuff, but, uh, but I do feel like I want to talk about by the end of this episode, I want us to have talked about the ending and where the characters end up. And um, and then I think, like I said, maybe we reserve some of these comments um, from Dylan and Cody Lloyd and Kipton and and uh, Dimitri and whoever else, Kratori. There are a ton of stuff from our listeners that we want to get to, and I want to make sure that we give them their due. So we may end up holding off on those for a little while so we can plan better responses. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can, I can actually address, it, it comes up, it seems to come up a lot. The, the literal deus ex machina. Yeah. Yep. Uh, which Wonder Woman's I, invisible thought, jet. I thought it was hilarious. I thought I it was, was pretty good. Hysterical. And people are like, Oh, it's a literal deus ex machina. And I'm like, I'm it, and it's, it's like, exactly. But yeah. Have a laugh. Yeah, Enjoy yourself. 
and and there's also there's a there's a nice tie-in in that moment um where the guy the the guy driving the plane i don't know if you guys know i i don't know how many details get uh, picked up but um darjan the ex the ex priest he has had his storyline began i think in i want to say in blinding knife there's one of the uh one of the nine kings one of the card segues uh and is it's called like the ex priest and that the guy flying the plane flying the condor is that guy he's also um his statue the the it's has fallen over and it's become this ruin in Tyria and I think there's a moment I'm pretty sure that there's a moment early in Black Prism where Kip is standing on that statue and that's who that is and so there's you know oh, nice. there's a moment yeah so there's there's so many tiny like little tie-ins where you know I mean I got to read as many times as I read it I I feel you like get to, I, you get to pick stuff up yeah <laughs> that we might miss yeah so you know there's like there's a lot going on in that scene and there's yeah i don't know i loved it ryan but anyway deus ex machina thumbs up thumbs down i i laughed i thought it was in, i enjoy, i thought it was enjoyable and i didn't feel it was totally like out of the blue runner because we have the condor from early on right. the, this early adaptation version right. of it it's like, okay this is this is a thing that could be right and if you have a god character who could perfect this, you know, it, it works. Right. It's not like he's bringing in, uh, yeah, I went to this other dimension and got a biplane from France. <laughs> you know, it's not, uh, it's a little different than that. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, there was enough there for me to not feel like it was totally crazy. And yes, I get it. It's God's flying a machine to go, not correct. I don't want to use the word correct because I feel that that's unfair to what happens in the story. But to uh, to make some adjustments to the f- plans of the future there, like uh, we've had people who say, so, yeah, yeah, spell it out for me a little bit. That basically, I've had reading a few responses, not just in um, Discord, but that basically God saves the day here. Right. I disagree. Do you? I disagree. The people that he's put in this position do everything they need to to save the day, and he goes in and rewards people for doing that work for putting themselves in a certain position right because it this is one of those things you know we joke about the uh indiana jones and the raiders of lost ark take indiana jones out the story's still the same right Uh, well (laughs) it doesn't quite work the same way here um if you don't have the people i I guess god could have come in and that would i i would have been upset if it had been that way where the heroes actually don't do anything they screw everything up and he just fixes it anyway oh gosh i can't believe you guys i I made this very clear all right (laughs) Uh, no, the 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 people out there, and just like in most fantasy, the those the chosen ones, the pawns of prophecy, step in, so to speak. Yes, do the work that they're supposed to do, and as such, are rewarded for doing that. Yeah, um, because the work is done by the time he's flying over there. The work has been finished. Mm-hmm. So he's going in and saying, "Okay, let's," and I get it. I. We'll we'll get into this more, I'm sure, in the future. But like, reviving Kip. Oh, I was just about to get to all that stuff. But all right, let's talk like, about reviving Kip. Um, bringing Kip back, giving the fingers and the eyes back to. It's like people feel like, uh, God came in and and Brent in the in a 
with a pen stroke, undid all the work he'd done in all these books. And I can't disagree anymore. I think that's the right objection. <laughs> <laughs> Got your negatives in the right place? I think so. You, you feeling all right? <laughs> um, because everyone made the choices and they did the action without knowing that that was a potential outcome. So, so the sacrifices made um, knowing that or believing that uh, that it is going to be the final sacrifice. Yes, Kip sacrifice of every single person who goes out there and does that does so knowing uh, knowing that this is probably the last thing I'm going to do. Right. The, the Black Luxon uh, wave is going to take so much out of Gavin that he figures I'm going to die after this. Yeah. Do that. Kip going on glare and just drawing and, light and trying to do it, which is actually, I I don't know why, if I didn't catch it the first time or it just resonated with me when I went through the second time, uh, that, that that sacrifice is how White Luxon is made. It's that ultimate sacrifice of self right. and life, basically. It's like, oh, I get it now. I connect that dot. And then um, everybody got a lightning scar on their forehead. Yes. <laughs> but I I am okay with giving these characters a happy ending for the work they've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming in and saying, you know what? Give him the coffee. The coffee doesn't revive him or yeah, Holland revives him. It's just, exactly. a, it's... Okay. <laughs> the coffee is a, it's symbol. It's yes. the, it's, it's uh, the, the bitter and blood it... of Christ. Or I don't know what it is. <laughs> Something. Well, I, I, it's, in fact, it's um, Jalal, Karis's uh, yeah. favorite copy seller. Yep. And so he shows that he's the one who, um, I'm sure you guys noticed, he is the one who carries Iron Fist into the elevator and brings him to Tia. I do remember mm -hmm. that. And uh, he's he's the one that, I think she actually mentioned, Karis mentions, that he took care of her after she was beaten up Yes. yes. Oh, I English. had forgotten about that. Okay. So yeah, That's... Jalal is a, he's one of the immortals. He's been around for a while. I love having I like these him. connections. Um, yeah. With the, okay. So speaking of reviving everybody. Okay. So let's lay all this stuff out. We all went into the burning white expecting massacres among our heroes, right? Mm -hmm. And it's called the Burning White. What's going to happen to Karis? Ah, you know, and we all expected that Kip's going to die. Gavin's going to sacrifice himself. And it's just going to be, you know, a bloody mess by the end. Instead, about the only hero who dies is Cruxer. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody else, you know, kind of has this happy ending. Okay. So with that in mind, um, when Brent came for the Burning White uh, Salt Lake City signing, Ryan, you and I were there. And he was doing a Q and a and I, I asked him a question about um, Lewis and Tolkien. And I, I can't remember exactly how the exchange went, uh, but I asked him who he sees himself more in line with it, as far as a style of storyteller. Are you more Lewis or are you more Tolkien? And he looks me kind of deadpan, just looks right at me and says, what do you think? And then goes on. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. I can see both. And so I'm curious, you know what he thinks. And he's, you know, I, I think maybe in Brent's mind, it's obvious which one he is. I still don't know because we have a, a very Narnia scene with, with the conversation with Orhalem. It reminded me a lot of Voyage of the Dawn Treader and the dragon skin with uh, Eustace and the whole like repentance, you know, personal change like you're talking about, Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, so that that reminded me a lot of reading something from Lewis. But then all the, the characters at the end... Um, 
surviving and being revived and Gavin gets his gifts back and all this stuff uh, reminded me very much of Tolkien in that um, Tolkien had a love of eucatastrophe. And this is a, a term that we've talked about on the podcast. It's something that he coined uh, where a catastrophe is a sudden turn from good to bad. Uh, you know, that's a, a term we're familiar with. Eucatastrophe would be the opposite of that. Everything has gone wrong and it's a, a turning back to the good. And Tolkien loved those moments. And I see that with Brent as well, where just like you said, Ryan, he likes to... Uh, you know, show his characters making the correct decisions, putting themselves in the right place to do the right thing, to make the right sacrifice. And then, you know, people can like it or not, but yeah, then God swoops in and says, congratulations, you, you win the game. And it's not fair. And and, and it's not fair. There, somebody on uh, Discord mentions, yeah, Kip gets revived amidst a field of bloody corpses, right? He's the one who gets revived right that's not fair well no it's not fair but he's the hero of the story so they're yeah. not um anyway and, but I, I i i personally like those moments of you catastrophe um I, even if it's vaguely odd in today's writing yeah i that's kind of my feelings on this is that we are in a period of uh grimdark being the main focus of our fantasy writing right now and this right. is this is the standard by which things are being graded against is the idea mm -hmm. of grimdark standards it's not realistic if heads aren't chopped off every few pages and i will and i will admit i will admit on this that up to this point in the series there haven't been a lot of uh maybe not uh you catastrophic you catastrophic you catastrophic that'll work yeah. <laughs> moments uh, things have generally worked out, but not to quite this scale. Right. So to have at the very end in a book with this when, series... When has, Kip gets to join the Blackguard anyway, that's a maybe one example of it, yeah. right? I like that moment. But the, I feel like that then this one, the scale of it on this one is just a little bit bigger. So if, if it felt little, out of place... A little. It's yeah. a little bigger. If it felt out of place, uh, that might be wild just because of the scale of it. But I still think it's fine. Yeah. I think we're just judging it. We're just so used to judging against Grimdark. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Melanie, what do you think? Um, I, you know, he uses the word, or Quentin uses the word eucatastrophe. Oh, does he in, really? Yes. Oh, and man. I, I wish I would have highlighted that. It's in one of, it's like one of the chapter 60 something. I don't know. I don't have it specifically, but um, yeah, he talks about. Like there's, there's a little bit of foreshadowing. Actually, there's a fair bit of foreshadowing in Quentin's scenes um, where he, like, he talks about specifically um, you catastrophes. And, and I don't remember the exact context, but I remember um, seeing it and I had to look it up when I first read it. I was like, what? That sounds familiar, but I don't know exactly what it is. I'm not the Tolkien scholar that most other <laughs> fantasy fans are, but <laughs> uh, so yeah. And it was, and when I first read it, I was like, what's the difference between a you catastrophe and a deus ex machina? <laughs> ah, oh, that's an excellent question. Ooh, there's, and, and there's a weekend episode right there. There, and there's a subtle difference. And I, I think, I think you guys kind of nailed it, you know, where it's, it's a turning, it's more, um, it's not just hand waving and magically everything is fixed. It's it's not the eagles flying over Mordor to carry 
Sam and <laughs> sorry. Well, I guess I'm going to let that one go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do we want to open up a can of worms at one hour into the episode or? Uh... I don't think so. Okay. Just not. as a small tangent though. I don't think there was a more rewarding moment in the book than when Quentin shot Zyman in the face. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it did. I didn't realize it until it happened. And I was like, there is no character in this story that I want to have done this more than Quentin shooting Zyman in the face. Yeah. Like, this fits so perfect. That's good. Well, Especially when you when you realize that um, Quentin is Karis's second Luxor, which she says something. There's a line in Blood Mirror where she says, she's like, I, I've already seen, I've already anointed two Luxors in my lifetime. And I don't want there to be any more. And I remember reading it and I'm like, okay, there's Tia, but who else? And we don't get that answer until that moment. And so like, that was just icing on the cake for me. I was like, oh, it's Quentin. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Uh, Well, we are kind of running out of time here. So here's what we're going to do. There are a lot of Discord comments to go over and I just skipped them all. So, I've already apologized a little bit, but uh, all right, Kiptan, Dimitri, Kratori, Stilgar, um, Cody Lloyd, whoever else, uh, Flazarus, I love that name, by the way, that's a new one on Discord, Flazarus. Um, we will keep these in our back, back pocket, and we're going to do a second Burning White episode, uh, but I feel like we've kind of uh, run into our time limit here today. So, uh, what I'm going to ask for, I usually do final thoughts, but... I think you and I, Ryan, will probably get to final thoughts on this book at the end of that episode. But Melanie, I want to give you a chance to, you know, if you if you have a one to two minute, just uh, say what you want to say about this book. Anything at all. Your final thoughts. This is your chance to, uh, you know, convince people to read it or like it or whatever. I'm Brent Weeks' assistant and you want to give me one to two minutes That's to sum correct. up a, a 400,000 word book? That is, that is correct. That is patently unfair. (laughs) Also correct. The Burning White is, it does what a lot of the best fiction does. It takes something deeply personal and individualistic from a person and from an author and puts ideas and thoughts and, and like into this beautiful and flawed story and I don't think there's anybody else who could tell this story except for Brent. I'm not an avid fantasy reader. I'm, I come from a much more um, theoretical and philosophical and literary, like kind of academic background. And there are moments in, in the series and in The Burning White in particular that just, they rival some of the best, like, quote unquote, literary fiction that I've read. Uh, What I said earlier, where if you want to make something astonishing, you can't be moderate about it. All the really impactful works that get talked about for decades, they're divisive. They take sides. They, and, and they bring out emotion in people that, you know, for better or for worse that, that get people talking and I think that's what Brent has done with this book. I think you're absolutely right. I think this 
book and this series will be talked about for a long time and it's largely because he wasn't trying to please everybody he was trying to tell the story that he wanted to tell uh yeah. come what may so yeah ryan uh any any final episode thoughts before we uh call it for today no i've been trying to sit here and think if there's anything i can say that would get to brent just after so many times being being screwed over by yeah, him. Yeah, just just that <laughs> little thing I can get back at him for. <laughs> nothing nothing came to mind, unfortunately. We're, don't worry, we have a whole other episode to uh, to rake Brent over the coals, and <laughs> we'll figure something out. You know, when uh, I mentioned he came here for a signing a little while ago, and I pushed Ryan pretty hard to play a prank on Brent, and Br- and, and Ryan wouldn't do it. And so I kind of feel like you missed your chance. I wouldn't do it in the in the setting we were in. It just seemed like a bad setting to oh, do it. Oh, it was in. perfect. It was so perfect. I was going to have Ryan stand up and um and and say, "Hey, I know you're going to sign all of our books, but I I was hoping you would sign my favorite and hold up a Joe Abercrombie." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, he wouldn't do it. So I Brent would have loved it. Brent loves to pretend to hate on Joe a lot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> any chance, you know, it's, but it's all in good fun. They're, they're friends and they, they get along really well. So, well, uh, Melanie, thank you very much for coming on and, and chatting about the burning white with us. I, yeah, you definitely, thank you for inviting me. definitely elevated the conversation today. So appreciate you coming on. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. I, I had a great time. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And I, uh, promised at the beginning of the episode i was going to talk about a giveaway uh brent did kindly sign a hardcover copy of the burning white to a lucky legendary listener uh and so i've got that it's been sitting on my shelf waiting for a while and so here's did you what check I, what he wrote in there i didn't i you might want to check what he wrote it's, in there um, when, I, when i say lucky i didn't say pleased <laughs> uh, he could have written anything uh, in fact, maybe you should pull it down. It's on the top shelf there. Let's see what it says in there. But here's what I want you to do. If you want a copy of, uh, a signed copy of The Burning White, I want this to go to a good home, right? This isn't just going to go to to anybody. So you better love this book if you want the signed copy of it. So go on Twitter, and I want you to tweet at us, at LegendariumPod, um, and you can tag Brent in it if you want to. You don't have to. But what I want is a one-sentence, five-star review of The Burning White. And uh, everybody go ahead and put in your your one-sentence five-star reviews of The Burning White. Make sure you at us so that I actually see it. And you will have one week until we... Well, I should say one work week because we're probably going to do the next Burning White episode next weekend or something. Uh, So you will have until Friday the 24th of January. Yeah, that's right. The 24th of January, 2020. So... Um, you have until Friday to put up your one, or sorry, your your one sentence five star review of the Burning White on Twitter, and uh, make sure you tag us in that, and then I will choose the best one, probably with Ryan and Stephanie at that point, and we will uh, send that copy to whoever wins. So, hope that makes sense. Yep. Okay. Good. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoy the show, support us at patreon.com slash legendarium. Don't forget to join the conversation at thelegendarium.reddit.com where you can also get a link to our Discord server where you can have uh, some fun live conversations with us there. Thank you to everybody who submitted your comments and questions. It did help me organize my uh, our conversation today, but I will address them specifically on the next episode. And we'll see you then. 
well, there was one little uh, fun tidbit that I wanted to share about um, the burning white and getting it written and the uh, the real ending. Okay. Which, uh, I don't know if if people. I'm sure by now most people are familiar with it because it was it the word about it spread like wildfire pretty quickly. <laughs> but um, when we when Brent was still drafting Burning White. So to speak. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, right. Um, in mid-March, I approached him and I said, I want to pull an April Fool's prank on your fans. And he said, yeah, okay, we can do that. And so I took this video of him and I told him, I was, I was like, I want to rickroll them and pull a prank on them. And so... I'm going to, we're going to pretend like you're talking to me about the ending and, uh, and I'm just going to put it on your YouTube page. And so it's here. He's like, everybody knows how it's going to end. Everybody's going to die except for Tia. Who's going to be our kind of Horatio, but, uh, they're going to die when they drink Andros's poisoned whiskey. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we just kind of, put it on his YouTube page and didn't really talk about it. And, uh, and then when he was you know, wrapping up and writing the final scenes and he, he showed me the shawarma scene and the quote unquote real ending. And I looked at it and I read it and I was like, this is hysterical. And then I took a minute and I said, this is exactly what you promised you were going to do in the April Fool's prank. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah. Like, hello, where have you been? So <laughs> I, I think it was Brent and a little bit me uh, poking fun at the, the people that we knew were going to be expecting like massive death everywhere, I, you know. Guilty. I... <laughs> I thought for sure, because he spent so much time promising, yeah. you know, he would get on and say like, oh, the, the just everything bad. I, I do terrible things to my characters. And I had read, you know, two, two or three of the books up to this point, And I'm like, I, really? Because a lot of good stuff happens to your characters, you know, maybe up until the end of book three. Um, but like everything seems to work out OK. So book five must be really bad if he's going to go down that road. He must really let everybody have it. And then they all just kind of like, yeah, right off into the sunset. I got my fingers back, everybody. <laughs> you know, he is—he is a my boss is a masterful prankster. Yeah, he... I don't want to use the word troll. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, did you ever figure out what the uh, inscription says? There are so many good podcasts out there. What are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not what he says. But oh, that's exactly not... what he would have said. What is it? It just says, thanks for listening to the Legendarium. Oh. But that's, I think in I'm... my mind, what Brent Weeks would have written in there was those lines. Oh, okay. I'm sure if I had turned him loose, uh, it would have been something like that. But it was at the end of the night. He had just signed like 300 books. Yeah. And so I was like, just just write this. It'll be fine. Remember when we signed a copy of a book and gave it away like we thought it was worth something? Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't worth anything. We deliberately defaced a Sanderson to give to a listener. Anyway. <laughs> 